and welcome to another edition of Book Talk. I'm Stephen Usry, and it's my pleasure to welcome Alexander Weinstein back to the program today. Alexander is the director of the Martha's Vineyard Institute of Creative Writing and an associate professor of creative writing at Siena Heights University. He was last on Book Talk to talk about his debut story collection, Children of the New World. Today we'll be talking about his latest story collection, Universal Love, which is published by Henry Holt and Company. Alexander, in the first story, The Year of Nostalgia, it's about a pair of adult daughters who buy their father a holographic version of the mother who had just recently passed away. And it becomes a little bit of a comedy of errors. Yeah, for sure. I mean, especially because the family ends up finding the, the new holographic mother much more intriguing than their real mom. And that's part of what I wanted to explore was like how we get connected and addicted to the replacements of our family, such as Snapchat or Facebook. It's sort of a, a metaphor for all of that. We ourselves are not that interesting if you take it in the lens of these programs and apps. Yeah. Because they offer heightened versions of ourselves. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, when you're saying that, it makes me think of how on dating apps now, people will put filters on that make themselves look younger or these kind of filters that can take away wrinkles. And so I think even in our daily interactions in some ways, we're trying to find this idealized version of ourselves. And several other stories made me think of how... Oftentimes, we'll refer to the persona that we have inside ourselves that we think of ourselves as the true version of ourselves and not the many other facets that exist. Yeah, I think that's true. Uh, I mean, I don't know what your experience is, but there's this feeling of that we're never really fully expressing who we are. Now, we're doing an okay job, but if you look at our different places, like how we portray ourselves at work or how we portray ourselves to friends that we kind of know, but we don't share everything with, right? There's, this is something I explored in the first book with openness of how much of that inner self do we really feel comfortable sharing with one another? And I think that modulates depending on the person. And sometimes you're sharing 80% or 70% and sometimes 20%. Um, and so a technology that could potentially allow us to see the full truth of each other is both horrifying and, and wonderful. <laughs> because a lot of us do lie to ourselves as a mm. matter of course. And is our true self even a true self if we're constructing on our own delusions? Yeah, completely, right? Like you think like, yeah, I'm a really upbeat person. And then you ask around and no, you're kind of a downer to hang out with. Or like, yeah, you know, I'm really giving or we tell ourselves these things. Or the opposite, right? That you say, yeah, I'm no good. Or, you know, I've never been fill in the blank. And that's actually a limitation of who we are. And so I think you're right. I think we do lie to ourselves about this inner self that we construct. In the tour guide stories, I have this island that you go to where you are your best self ever. And you start writing the novel you've always wanted to write. And you play music and you do yoga. And then you come back and you never return to the island. And you slowly slip away from all these great habits once you return. But you remember that self and always imagine you'll go back to that self. And you can kind of see the self waving at you. And I think this is a recurring theme I'm realizing that shows up in a lot of my work of how do we connect with that self and how do we feel distance from it. And memory plays such a huge role in a lot of these stories. When you think about technology, you know, there are several different major uses of electronic technology. One of them is for record keeping slash memory keeping. Yeah. That's a great observation that so much of our Facebook or our social media or our thousand photos we never print out are indeed what we're collecting. And there's this, I guess even Facebook gives us those memories every day of looking back and then reposting our memories. And you see that conflict of memory mm -hmm. and separate personas in that very first story. Yeah. When you have the daughter's different ideal of their mother as opposed to their father's ideal of his wife. That's right. And they have to separate those out. Right? The story has a premise that you can have folders where you can sort the memories you want of your parents or whoever it is that you're replacing. Yeah, between all the characters, the sister, for example, the two sisters, one sister wants the full access. The other one definitely doesn't, doesn't want to know about the sex lives, doesn't care, just wants a more simplified holographic mother. The dad, in many ways, I think does too. He has the parental control, so he doesn't get control over his own wife, <laughs> which is its own metaphor. I was listening to our, our previous interview, and there was one where we were talking about how literary fiction around the world isn't as broken down into genres That's right. as American is. And we're wondering why we have to have these labels in America. But just now I had this idea that 
maybe it's because of these folders that we have mm. in this memory in the nostalgia program there that we are kind of trained by our computers that we have made to then make these hierarchical recursive folders and that we have to be able to label things in order to store them properly within that system that's built on that. Well, and so then we'll become more and more segmented in some ways or more and right. more specified. That's probably true. I mean, in music, it's, we certainly see that. You know, it's a post-punk and then five more descriptors. In a way, you know, it's a marketing yeah. for marketing shorthand. But the fact that we might be, well, we are always adapting to our technology as much as we are making our technology adapt to us. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's right. So the benefit of it would be this kind of human genome project of music, for example, where Spotify really does get the perfect playlist based on the nuances of genre, right? And so everything can be tailored to exactly the, you know, uh, two teaspoons of this and five tablespoons of punk rock and whatever, and there it is. I think we want that. But there's a problem that I'm constantly playing with in my fiction, which is that we want the specificity and we want the tailored you know, preferences. But the problem is I think it makes us less and less able to adapt to change or to things, to people that don't meet our ideologies or don't fit into the way that we think the world should be. I'm always a kind of a person that likes to break the algorithm. Mm -hmm. I don't want you to be able to predict what I want to do next. There's, right. Does that have to do with free will? I don't know if it's it's based on free will or just being oppositional. Maybe yeah, I, I, yeah. I'm, I'm growing up with oppositional defiance disorder or something. Yeah, yeah, but me too. I, I mean, I totally I don't want it. you to be able to predict what I want, I want to do next. Yeah. If I listen to some heavy metal, then, you know, Don Ho right after that. And <laughs> totally. Yeah, I have that too. Especially if everybody's like, oh, you're going to love this. And like, you know, the more people that like something, for some reason, immediately I'm like, oh, it can't be good, right? Then I'm always very happily surprised when, in fact, oh, I love this show <laughs> that everybody else has been watching uh, and recommending forever. I remember my father recommended me to watch the miniseries Lonesome Dove mm -hmm. forever. And I just refused to. I'd read other Larry McMurtry works, but I just refused to. Mm -hmm. I finally watched it and went, yeah, that, that was incredible. Right. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Yeah, it has something to do with the creative process, I think, of, for me constantly trying to, in some ways, reinvent the wheel or find new ways or find a original way to tell something. So it, I can see that there's a connection there. Probably part of it is growing up in a small town in the South hmm. and people think they have your number. Oh, right. Totally. And they think you know, they know you because it's a small town. Uh-huh. Now, as much as the title of the book is Universal Love, it could almost be called Modern Parenting as well. <laughs> right. There's a whole lot of dysfunctional parent-child relationships in the course of the book. There is. You know, and parenting just keeps showing up as a theme. It's not something I set out to write about, but because parenthood and fatherhood for me is really the biggest part of my life, I would say, you know, I just so cherish and value father-son relationships or parent-child relationships, it keeps showing up in there. Now, the children have changed in many ways from the first book, where the children were quite innocent, I think. They were often the, if we think of the title story of Children of the New World, they were the ones that were getting erased. They were at risk constantly. And I've seen in this new book, they're changing their roles completely. They've grown up, usually, or they're technologically savvy. And they're either holding the parents hostage or rebelling against them or in the story migration really turning the tables on the parents and creating havoc with the world. And so I was watching that as I wrote it. I said, huh. And then I realized, oh, yeah, I'm also dealing with the teenage years <laughs> of my son. And so there's a way that the, the teenage years of that kind of angst played into some of these relationships. You can see these children, if they're real or synthetic or mm -hmm. androids, are realizing they have power in their relationships. Yeah, very much so. That's right. Across the board, they're breaking free. They no longer want the world that the parents had set up for them. And that's an interesting question because, for example, in I think migration has the most complex parent-child backstory where the parents really, because they reacted in that story to an overload of technology, essentially where we are now, you know, apparently in this story, I don't go deeply into it, but we were implanting chips and everything, and there was malfunctions and smart car crashes and elections being hijacked by technology. And so the adults put a moratorium on it, and kids grew back up with landlines and sending letters, and they hated it. And so now they decide, no, we're going to put the internet in everyone's brain, and no one will ever be able to be 
you know, free from that. But in their idea, that's pure democracy or that's pure freedom. And so I see that the kids are controlling and they are turning the tables on the adults there, which is probably just my fear about <laughs> watching the next generation. So what does Walden 2.0 look like? <laughs> Walden 2.0, I know that exists, right? I don't there's, know. There's this video game where you can be go to Walden and just oh, really? like, yeah, you can read the, you know, throw a rock in the pond. And, and I think- You can it, have your mom and sister cook food <laughs> for you, so you don't have to do that yourself. <laughs> that's right. The, the meal shows up. I think we will find this. This is the whole meditation app landscape, the virtual reality worlds where we will enter into in order to get quiet. There's a couple stories that actually play with that. In the True Left testimonials, for example, there's this one guy who just goes online just to kind of play Sudoku and look out the window and listen to music and sing. It may be that we will start to recreate our world but quieter online in this endless repetition, much like Borges or something like that, just constantly trying to reproduce the thing that we are losing by adding all the technology. So since we last spoke three and a half years ago, what kind of new things have you noticed yourself, the way you interact with technology and how that inspires you in, in your stories? Yeah, so I'm much more addicted to it, without a doubt. You know, I remember when I w went on, on tour and did interviews for the first book, I would used to ask how many people check their phones 10 times a day, right? Okay, 20 30, and now that's basic, that's entry level. Now it's like, do you check it 100 times? Do you check it 1,000 times a day? And so I can feel that. You know, I can, you get that report up with an iPhone, like you're up to four hours a day now. You're up to five hours a day. And that's one of the main things that I see is that I'm checking my phone a lot more. It'll be sometimes on the seat in the car. So at a red light, I can send off a text. And I'm watching that with horror and I'm saying, what am I doing? Why am I... Uh, and I see that everybody else is doing it. You know, you look over and you see the next car and they're also sending off the text. So I see that being the main change. For the most part, I'm not deeply involved with apps and things like that. So I think the only other change was I got addicted to a video game that my son got, and that's Purple Heart. This is the story Purple Heart. He got uh, Just Cause 3, which was this amazing game that I was horrified by where you blow up things, you get bazookas, and you just go to towns and blow up gas stations. And, you know, I thought it was awful. And I let him play it, and then he let me play it, and I sucked at the game. And so I spent all night trying to learn how to play it. And before I knew it, it was my favorite game. And now I was blowing up gas stations in third world countries and all of that. And so I think I got more involved a little bit in video gaming since last. It's something that's definitely passed me by, of course. I grew up with Atari yeah. in, in the 80s. Right. And... I never really progressed much beyond that. I, I had a few computer games mm -hmm. in the late 90s, some race car simulations yeah. and city building with SimCity type yeah. thing. Yeah, yeah. But the Twitch games now that you have to have such great reflexes and hit 55 buttons on the controller, I am not capable of doing that. Me me either. It's, it's such a learning curve. I was Nintendo is when I stopped. And so I was at least used to two buttons. You know, if you got the Max controller, there was four buttons and, and one control. And now you have to, like, dual control. And if you don't go through the tutorial, forget it. And so there's a real gap there where my son will get a new game. And unless I spend those hours trying to learn it, he's far surpassed me and then finishes the game and gets rid of it before I can even play it. Sounds like he needs some yard work to do. <laughs> <laughs> totally. I mean, that's this is part of the uh, parental thing about, you know, how do you get your kids away? Fortnite was this huge thing for parents. And I play with that in my stories where, you know, the dad is asking the kid, well, how much longer till you can turn this off? Well, five minutes or an hour is pretty much, you know, it depends how long the game goes. I have to play with these groups of random people online. And it's weird because it does set up these weird social dynamics online that we don't have in person. So they're not quite a parasocial uh, yeah. relationship that we would have with a celebrity. We have mm. these weird kind of channeled communications with other people in the context only of these games. That's right. And on top of that, you know, as you're saying that in this weird way, you know, like the dances of Fortnite, these dances that people do at the end when they've killed everybody and they do a little dance on screen. Now football players are doing those dances. And so there's this very strange replica of the video game world that's happening or a reciprocal relationship between 
form where you are not really connecting with people live, like you're saying, and then bringing that into the live world. In the story Mountain Song, mm-hmm. we have where people are kind of valued for their thoughts. That's how you earn yeah. some money is to, to have these kind of profound thoughts. That's right. And it made me think of kind of the YouTube creators of the day who are so pressed to keep new content coming out yeah. to keep it up because that's how they make their living. And this character says, man, I got to keep having these profound thoughts. <laughs> this, this is tough. It is right. You have to post to the think stream in that story. And, you know, he had that one small viral sensation and made some money. And now he's trying to come up with better thoughts, but there's too many other copycat thinkers out there. And this is definitely the pressure that we have I think, like you're saying, in YouTube or if you're trying to, uh, what is it called, influencers, right? I mean, there's this whole market economy that happens because of how you present yourself online. I think that creates an incredible amount of anxiety for, especially for for kids trying to have a social presence or relate to one another. And the fact that they have these short form things, whether it be an Instagram post or a 10-minute video on YouTube because you have to have 10 minutes to get the most ads possible in there. I wonder how, if they feel the same way to old-fashioned movie celebrities as short story writers feel to novelists. A short story writer does have a more precarious life than a novelist, it seems. Yeah, you know, it's hard to know since I've only, like, compare only because I've only written short stories and it's what I think of. And in many ways, I've had to ignore the both advice and suggestions that You know, when I got out of my MFA program and I was writing, they said, well, you really should write a novel if you're writing short stories. Maybe you can enter it in a contest, but don't bother with. Or get the two book deal, the short stories first and the novel. Right, all of that, that kind of. And so I really had to not listen to well-intentioned advice and just say, well, I'm going to still submit my short story collection to agents and I'm still going to try to go the mainstream route. I'm really happy I did, as well as stick to the truth, which was, well, a two-book deal would still be a short story collection at this point because I didn't want, at that point, I didn't want to be tied to a novel because I didn't think that way. Now I'm starting to open up and say, okay, I could see playing with a novel at, at some point. I still think mostly in short stories. How much of it is a challenge for you to kind of keep thinking of these, having a different paradigm for each story that you kind of have this different technological world you're dealing with or environmental collapse type scenarios? You know, not not that difficult in that I tend to have a lot of different, it's p- part of what I love about the short story form is that I can keep changing locations, tones, time, characters, voice, even the genre of the piece. But the trick is to make sure that I don't repeat myself. And so Mountain Song originally, in its original publication before it got into the book, was a very different story. The parents were barely present at all, and it was actually a love story, which now is completely gone from it. And as we were working on it, my editor said, well, this story already repeats a lot of the things that you've done. And so really, unless you change it somehow, I I would suggest we don't put this in. It's just going to be a repetition of that the internet affects romance and things like that. So then I really had to think it through. And I had already felt that way, that something was missing. And it turned out that the parents and that relationship and this whole thought stream was the part that was missing. And I think that's the challenge, is that, you know, as a writer, I have to constantly look, did I already say this? Have I already covered this landscape? If so, I can move on and do something different. Because I'm a child of that age, when I see the title Mountain Song, it makes me think of Jane's Addiction. Totally. <laughs> and so I went back, I said, man, I don't even remember the lyrics for that one. Yeah, so that's a great song. I went back it? and listened to it and said, everyone's got their own opinion. Everyone's got their own opinion. Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> you know, I didn't... I mean, and cash in now, baby. Cash in wow, now, baby. Wow, that's so cool that it has that parallel. I mean, I loved the song and I liked that it has this, a number of my stories have secret references to music because I I love music. But that's so cool that thematically it also echoes that. Can you share a couple of secrets with us? Or Yeah, I mean, a lot of them came in the uh, first book. I remember in, in Cartographers, the company, Woods, Barrett, and I forget the third there, but that was Medeski, Martin, and Wood. And Barrett, who loses his mind, was a reference to Sid Barrett from Pink Floyd. And so there was these kind of subtleties that I, I put in for my own enjoyment. <laughs> <laughs> I remember 
in the early seasons of Law and Order, they used to use musicians' names as character names a lot. There was a, a Roland Kirk and a Lane Staley, and they mm-hmm. used them from jazz, grunge, and everything. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and and that's I like inventing new music genres in there. There's, I think, acid pop and and trying to figure out what would be the new music styles uh, twenty years from now. I have seen that as one of the most difficult things for authors to do mm-hmm. is to talk about fictional music yeah. in books because. The way music evolves is so of itself that trying to force it seems odd. Definitely. And, and, and I find that too. I mean, I, I keep it to a minimum. And then mostly it's just like, wow, what would either be really horrifying music? I, I think this kind of in, in Beijing, the acid pop they're listening to is probably pretty painful music to listen to. Or what would I love to hear of, of a kind of resurgence of a uh, roots reggae in some new form that we've yet to hear? Because, I mean, we've already had like Test Department and Throbbing Gristle. <laughs> They've already kind of plumbed the depths of just pure noise. That's so. right, yeah. Um, and that was 40 years ago. Yeah. Sun Ra, too, right? I mean, Sun Ra had these walls of sound that are incredible. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm really interested in seeing where will our music go? Where will our films go? Where will our literature go? I've had this thought that we've been trapped in a kind of modernist, psychoanalytic, almost Freudian state of, of conflict and melodrama, which, you know, I use that not derogatorily, but the, the melodrama of our lives, that there is relationships and breakups and all of this kind of stuff that is the fodder of everything, revenge, jealousy, you name it. We've been in that, stuck in that for a really long time. And what would a kind of golden consciousness era of writing or film look like if we dropped the melodrama of the emotions that we consider so important. Isn't that what Star Trek was supposed to be? (laughs) It's amazing, yeah. And I I don't know what that is fully yet, but I think it's coming. Like, you know, because if we can watch three hours of explosions and murder, I think we could watch three hours of really beautiful colors and sound. Oh, I mean, I could watch kittens for days. (laughs) (laughs) Right. I'm I'm hoping it's more complex than this, what I'm trying to get at. But maybe, maybe I've just missed. And we talked last time about kind of our human desire for conflict. Yes. And I mean, do you think we'll ever get beyond that? Yeah, that's what I wonder. I mean, this is probably also the Buddhist part of my work that comes through, which is that, you know, so much of our conflict is based in personality and desire and what we want and who we think we are. And so now we're back to that kind of first question of who we think we are. And, you know, the Buddhist view would be that that's an illusion, that we're already making a mistake the moment we say, I am this, because we're limiting that spectrum. And so part of that philosophy that's informing this idea of conflict is that potentially we're limiting the span of our art or the span of our consciousness in our art and what it can do if we're limiting it to conflict. Now, what does it mean to transcend? And maybe this is the transcendentalist that we're trying this too. But what does literature or film that tries to transcend look like? It's a hard concept to even wrap my mind around. And I think people like Calvino have explored that. A little bit. There's a playfulness potentially or an awe, and Milhauser does it too, but that's just one flavor of this other kind of genre that might exist. But in order to transcend, you have to have something to transcend over. So <laughs> that in always, its way, that in its own way, is a conflict right, of a sort. It always tether you. It's so interesting. And so that's, you know, that's just what I think about as a writer sometimes and try to see what, you know, if you put that out there, where will it draw to? And indeed, conflict is always the one that comes back. It's one of the most fundamental building blocks of short stories and fiction um, because, you know, otherwise, in some ways, you lose yourself in constant description. Though I think poetry may have some answers to this, the way that language itself can create feelings of ending or closure or circularity. Yeah, it's, it's still early stages, but something's coming from that at some point. I, I keep playing with that. But I wonder how much of that is kind of our natural role as humans and that as we get older, we've seen the five stories over and over and we, we kind of become dissatisfied and say, oh, movies are for kids nowadays, uh, the pop music, uh, yeah, whatever. Right. And a lot of us, and I'm not immune to it either, get drawn more toward instrumental music mm. at that point in their lives. How interesting, yeah. That's true. I mean, I, I'm very drawn to, towards instrumental music. And it's just at a certain point, words fail us. That's right. And music's an interesting thing because there's not necessarily conflict in music, but we can be entertained by it for very long periods of time. You know, it can produce these kind of states of either awe or joy or nostalgia and melancholy. 
which is really interesting since that's just a sonic landscape without language. And maybe this is key to how to figure that out. And now it almost sounds like I'm talking about poetry again because maybe it is the sonic landscape of, of language that can open up the doorways into other forms or other genres. Because you know, as children, you know, we love repetition. Yeah. And become less so as at least for stories. That's right. Because we know story dynamics. We know the That's mechanics right. of the things. We Okay, this is going to happen. This is going to happen. Yeah, movies become pretty predictable. Right. Yeah. As you become an adult. Yes. And so unless you're just an uber-talented musician, mm-hmm. there's still some surprise there in the music that you appreciate. Yeah, that's right. I don't know how that has to do with your book. But <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I think that, you know, part of the music, I'm constantly listening to the musicality in the stories. There's a lot of heart opening that I was trying to work with in Universal Love. And so looking at that, I would listen to certain music in order to try to expand if I wanted a hard, expansive scene. And that does have to do with how do you create your sentences to reflect these emotions. And so there is this musicality, I think, that's constantly informing what I'm trying to do in the characters or the the plots. In your story, Infinite Realities, there are a couple of young researchers who are trying to find out if the multiverse is real and if That's there's right. a way to get there. Yeah. And uh, Michael Zapata was just on the show a couple of weeks yeah. ago. And in his book, there's a book about multiple universes yeah. in there as well. And we had a, a brief touch on it, but I wanted to talk about what's an anthropocentric, uh, anthro, anthropocentric? How, how, do you, how do you say that? I think it's right. Anthropocentric. anthropocentric yeah. View of human choice driving multiple universe spinoffs. Well, say more about that. Just uh, uh, just the fact that you hear people say, and this universe, you're wearing a blue shirt today. This one, you're wearing a green shirt today. Mm-hmm. And the fact that there are so many particles in the universe and to think that, you know, we educated animals on this backwater mm-hmm. of a, an insignificant galaxy are spawning universes through our trivial choices in, in the terms of the universe. Yeah. That's, is, you know, why would our particles matter more than particles elsewhere? And yeah, right. That's that's a great observation. In other words, as you, you say, like that we we focus it on what shirt we might be wearing, right, or what choices we'd be wearing. Uh, Choice uh, and girlfriend. Or? Yeah, right. In this case, yeah. I mean, the, the this string theory of which I'm no expert at all, but you know, as I understand this multiverse, absolutely, we might appear completely different creatures. We may not exist as humans. You know, who even knows how the planets rotate or the galaxies work in in the multiverse. I think the understanding that I have of it, which is this very rudimentary and fun understanding where you make one choice and if you didn't make a left turn, what would have happened if you made the right turn? We're definitely... Sliding doors. Yeah, we're very interested in that, right? And that's because I think we constantly think about that. That's our regrets. Oh, if only I had taken blank in college, then I would be doing the following. Had I asked so-and-so out, maybe then, and then we construct a better reality, presumably, right, than we're living now. And that's really interesting to me because here we go again with this idea of the construction of our minds. You know, we could sit around lamenting this choice that we never made for years upon years. I think many of us do this. What a fool I was, you know, how could I have done that? If only, that if only really interests me because I think it's a delusion of the mind. Are there multiple realities? Potentially. I don't know that they would be human-centric in that way. Well, behind you, there's bookshelves full of alternate realities. <laughs> that's right, exactly. Right, that's what we do as writers and, and artists and also as human beings. We continually make these multiple realities. That particular story is fun for me because here this character wants to find that alternate girlfriend that still loves him or can love him. And you know, the overstory of that is really if he would just pay attention and change his ways and actually work on the relationship, then maybe he could find that person that loved him. And that's part of what I'm, I think I'm saying in all of these is that when we think of these alternate realities or these other pathways, actually, if we just focused on our life now, we might have those other pathways and all the things we wanted. And there's your Buddhism with being present. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it always sneaks in a little bit for sure. I love the idea in that story that the quantum entanglement Mm-hmm. would bring a connection between the two different versions of his girlfriend together so that they started feeling some common experience. Yeah, yeah, right. That's what that kind of melding, I call it, right? Because they sort of like magnets start to, those two timelines start to pull towards one another. Also with objects, right? His video game system gets trapped in the alternate dimension. Yeah, what struck you about that particular 
Well, because I kind of have, you know, my stupid non-scientific idea of what drives the universe's possibility than the, the collapse to the one mm, mm -hmm. one reality. Yeah. Is the, that's what kind of gives motion to particles is the Heisenberg uncertainty principle. It can be at any one of these moments. It's observed. Bam. It, oh, it slams great. into place. And that's what kind of drives motion of particles. Right. And so seeing those multiple iterations of that universe come back together mm -hmm. and to become rejoined, I thought was just a, a fabulous idea <laughs> to, to, to simplify the, because if multiplicity is a thing, then it's just to think of the possibility of every particle spawning infinite versions of itself yeah. that are discrete from the particles next to it. I mean, it's just overwhelming. It is overwhelming to think about that. <laughs> and that was an overwhelming story in that way in the drafts because it had so many ways you could go once again. You know, here's the multiple realities. And I had to really limit how many multiples did I want to track because it's possible to track a couple of those. Alternate reality girlfriend finds his second alternate reality self on Facebook and in the original drafts, I tracked that trail for a while and then decided, yeah, I have to limit how many paths I want to go down. Well, and that's kind of like a, a nice metaphor for the, the author in general is that you have this choice paralysis when you're looking at that white page. Absolutely. And I overwrite on purpose to try to explore as many different versions of the story, as many, you know, I'll write four or five openings just for the sake of trying to write them again or middles or sections or, or uh, and so I cut probably from a what ends up being a 20-page story there's probably 50 pages of writing that went into that of scenes that I love that just don't fit and the reason they don't fit tend to be craft-based where we'll go back to this idea of the conflict and character-based conflict and secondary characters and setting and what's the cohesive narrative arc of this story so it's very traditional craft elements that I bring to bear on the editing process, but the draft process is, is a wild one that kind of goes as many directions as I can as possible. But what does it feel like to you to finally say the story is now ready to be printed? Uh, it's, it's a great feeling. What's really funny is that I forget about all the work. <laughs> and so in the middle of all of that editing that takes anywhere from six months to a year for a story, it's, you know, hellish at times and really painful because I have to cut parts and it doesn't feel like it's working and I have to write a new part. And then a year after it's published, I'm like, look at that story. That story was so easy to write. Why is this next one <laughs> not the same? It's very relieving to have the stories published and feel like I, I polished them and got them to, allowed them to sing in the way that they had wanted to. It's kind of like that uh, amnesia women get with the pain of childbirth. Right, yeah. That's right. Yeah, because if you had to remember how painful, yeah, indeed, that is a, a uh, sometimes how it feels mentally to be working through stories that aren't yet, you know, singing, as I call it, or, or, or working on the page. Very painful, right? Because you have to go through, as m most writers go through, this dark night of the soul of, you know, should I write this? Why am I writing? I've, I've lost it. All that kind of stuff comes up. And I call that the inner critic, and you just have to kind of push that inner critic away from the writer. But they're useful when it comes to editing. It's really useful. Then you have to invite the inner critic back and, and train it to talk nicely to you, but be, be blunt and honest. So we've talked about the different facets of our human persona. The different facets of a writer must mm -hmm. be terribly difficult to integrate as well. It is. You know, and I teach this too, that there's three parts of the writer. There's the inner writer who simply loves to write, will create nonstop. It's like a, a child maybe with a, a crayon that will draw a hundred smiley faces and throw them over their shoulder. It's just the creation process. And that writer is, for me, the one that does all the first drafts and everything. And then there's the inner critic who says you suck during that process and comes in as like a really bad parent. Like, why are you drawing a hundred you know, faces that are the same? You need to stop that. And that's really the inner critic is an untrained editor. And it's also the unloved self, I found. It's, it's trying to protect the writer from making a fool of themselves. And in the worst way possible, by often saying, just stop writing and go back to law school or whatever it is. Or as Adam Sandler say, they're all going to laugh at you. That's right. They're all going to laugh. And I don't want that to happen. So just stop writing. And so you have to train that part. 
And I find they can't be in the same room at the same time. And then the third part is the inner slacker who's like, let's go see a movie, guys. <laughs> you know, hey, forget yeah, about writing. We, we got to feed the muse. That's right. Exactly. And, you know, they like, call your parents, call some friends, whatever. Let's binge. And, yeah, the inner slacker is, as you say, actually good as the muse sometimes to when you've been sitting around writing too long or you finish a book. Then I think the slacker comes into play. Or even to lighten things up a little bit to say, hey – it's a story. <laughs> have fun. It's a novel. Remember to have fun. But otherwise, the slacker kind of has to get out of the room. I was thinking about the story Childhood. Yeah. And we had a couple of android children. Mm-hmm. And they've been implanted with false memories, but they also have real memories. Yeah. And I was thinking about, you know, maybe they made them a little too human mm-hmm. because they have this longing that they can't seem to fulfill. Yeah. And I thought, well, they should have just zeroed out those values. They shouldn't have worried about that. I said, but then what's the point of having a relationship with someone who's stunted and doesn't have access to all of their emotions? And Yeah. Yeah, it's a good question. It's something that I uh, – I've wrote a number of stories that ended up not, not making it in there. But I ex- childhood does – explores this idea that the parents get to set even the percentage of love that they'll have or the percentage of rebelliousness. And I have another story that deals with sex bots where you could then control the levels of agreeability of the sex bot. And so it's a very similar – and I, I think as we get these robots, we're going to have to decide this of what percentages of free will and, uh, and individuality do we give them. And there's something really that rubs me the wrong way in controlling another being's, even if it's robotic, their sense of free will or – I want you to agree this much with me, and and you don't? Okay, so let me lower your (laughs) opposition. And as I'm saying that, I'm wondering, is that what we do when we cut the friends from Facebook, right? Is that how we choose our friends anyhow? And are we already curtailing? The only difference is we don't actually, Mm -hmm. you know, change their inner, but we do change our preferences potentially. Well, I mean, we have to. I mean, Mm -hmm. there are – it depends on how sensitive – or particular you are, yeah. maybe that's better than sensitive, but how particular you are to different types of behavior where if you had a friend that said, you know, pineapple on pizza is the greatest thing ever and just mm. suck it, <laughs> if you don't believe it, you know, that's a stupid reason in a friendship. But if, right. if they keep spouting racist tropes, uh, Absolutely, memes, absolutely, you <laughs> cut them, right? Yeah. But, but this is the question of whether or not our technology and something I'm exploring in this book is pushing us further and further apart because we have this kind of polarization that's very – difficult to have in the same way face-to-face. The anonymity of online, I think, allows us to say much more horrible things. And certainly, we've become what I feel more polarized and and less able to have critical conversations, at least online, it it, it seems. In person, you actually have to see the person. You actually have to try to reach them to some degree. And there's more civility, perhaps. We may be losing that. But I'm pointing towards that Technology is helping us lose that compassion for one another. I was thinking about the story Sanctuary. Yeah. In which there are these strange interdimensional beings coming into our electronic world. Yeah. Little mantises of a sort. That's right. And I actually had a problem kind of like imagining the particulars of the story. Yeah. I felt kind of the commentary I thought you were making about refugees coming to America and the split over sanctuary cities and and that. You know, I I felt that's where the story was headed, but just the particulars of how these things would affect our online lives, it was a little bit lost. I, I couldn't quite... Get yeah, my fingers right. around it. Right. So the, the premise is, right, that this, there's now this immersive reality which everybody's using and they're going to online gyms and they're going to yoga studios and pretty much from the safety of their own home, they put on these goggles and live their lives online. And then the, the, there's these creatures that rip open that virtual world that somehow this virtual technology we created really just created an interface with the galaxy. Literal computer bugs are coming. Yeah, and they're really literal computer bugs, but they are actually you know, meat and, and blood and, and alive in there. And so they can interact with our coding, but we can't. And we can interact that way with them. Like we can shoot them and things like that. But they really are not just programs. They're beings. Yeah, the story does get into how would we treat suddenly these intergalactic bugs that are miraculous that are showing up. And you have the two sides, right? The ones that want to protect them and create sanctuary and the president and others who are saying, let's squash them and they're going to invade. And this sort of false idea that they would invade our reality. 
again, the metaphor is completely I'm looking at immigration and refugees and the, the cages that the president and this administration has set up. And yet I want to always make my metaphor not one-to-one, right? And so it's a kind of wonky metaphor in that way. But at the end, this idea that we turn against one another, right? And so that we constantly be walking down the street wondering about our neighbors and the people who pass us. Are you on my side or not? Am I fighting you or not? Which is how I feel like we find ourselves living today. Yeah, I mean, a, a MAGA hat does make a, <laughs> a nice sign, Mark. Right, absolutely. I mean, these are – and there's reason for it, right? Because we are really split on some really big human rights issues that, that seem hard to bring together. You're either for human rights or you're either for protecting or feeding the poor or you're not, right? You're either for gay rights or you're you know, not. And there are a middle ground, so to speak, of how to engage and talk about these things. But if you believe that we should be putting people in cages, that's a very difficult argument <laughs> to sort of withstand if you believe in, in human rights. The only way that I think that can be bolstered is if you create a fiction around why those people should be in cages, that they're dangerous and that we have to protect ourselves. And so I think we are living in a time when a lot of fictions are being put out there and, and we're living with kind of alternate realities constantly. And uh, there was another story um – Comfort porn, yeah, and people don't don't get too afraid. We're not going to talk about any <laughs> sexual things really in here. And the technology aspect of that story is not very far from where it is nowadays. A woman moves to New York to become an artist. She can't make a go of it art wise, so she's helping people write their Tinder profiles essentially. That's right. And so the technology aspect is very low on that, but the horrific circumstances of her existence is that everything has become transactional. Yeah. She cannot believe anything does not exist in some type of economic model. That's right. And exactly that it's this post-Tinder world where you can have sex very easily simply by clicking on a couple buttons and figuring out what you want for that night. But friendship you can no longer have, right? And so the pornography of that world has become watching clips of people saying, it's so good to see you. I've missed you. How are you? Which is heartbreaking. And yet then I was talking to somebody and said, oh, yeah, that exists. I said, what? They said, well, yeah, there's like, you know, hours of pillow talk that you can watch where somebody's just talking to you afterwards, you know, and saying how much they love you. And I said, oh, my God. Because I think this is where we find ourselves with technology sometimes, where we spent all day talking to a lot of people and not having opened our lips or said a word, right? It's, it's all in emails and text messages and responding to posts and are alone in our apartments laughing at the screen of something that a meme or something somebody posted and loving it, but we've never engaged on a human level. And that's part of that. And the transactional part is that I think our apps and like we we're talking about YouTube and how, how well can you promote yourself, there is this self-promotion so that everything becomes transactional right now, which is, for me, the opposite of, of real human connection. It's strange how willing and eager we are to, to approach simulacra hmm. as viable replacements for real experience. Yeah. Well, I think it's because we long for it, right? I mean, and, and the sweet part, so to, so to speak, of technology is that it does create connection. There are pictures and of loved ones, and it reminds us of really great moments in its, in its most intimate, but it can never replace that intimacy. And I think that's the mistake that we're making with technology is that we constantly feel that it can potentially replace love or closeness or intimacy. And I think it can give us, as you're saying, the simulacrum of that, but never actually fulfill true human connection. Well, I've decided that I only want our online lives to consist of cat videos <laughs> and fact checks of uh, our politician statements. Yeah, right. Yeah, right. <laughs> That's all we need. Yeah, it's interesting to see. I mean, I was I watched that film, The Great Hack, about Cambridge Analytica and, and, and the dangers of what our social media has done to the election process. And that, indeed, our info was sold to companies, is continuously sold to companies. That's what our app manufacturers and our, our, our great programs that we love, our social media programs, are doing. And so maybe the transactional part of how we use it is because it's being informed 
by the very apps themselves, by the ideologies of how those apps are being used. And so I also think about how do we transform the internet? How do we begin to have an internet that actually gives our, our data dignity back, right? Or doesn't force us to have to market ourselves. Maybe that's where I uh, grew up in the past where I wanted to confound people's expectations. Yes. I was born to bust algorithms. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Thank goodness. We need, we need algorithm busters. If I'm on a music service and mm -hmm. they say, maybe you'd like this, I'm probably not going to. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and I think that's, you know, as I'm thinking about this, when we're saying algorithm busters, that in, in comfort porn, that story, that's what the friend is. Uh, when she shows up, she's an algorithm buster, right, just by being an actual friend that shows up and wants to visit. And because the main character, you know, it's been about 10 years since she actually had a real relationship, she can't see it except see that friend is trying to get something for her until that friend breaks that algorithm. Although I... YouTube actually hit something for me recently. Yeah. A Japanese heavy metal band. Okay. Who've been around for 30 years that I've never heard of called Ningen Isu. Mm -hmm. And uh, they recommended a, a video and it's these middle-aged guys playing Japanese heavy metal. And I went, I didn't know I needed this. <laughs> Completely. And they finally got me. <laughs> yeah. And, and I mean, you know, the, the flip side of this for me is that I think there's absolutely beautiful parts of the internet. And I think the ability to see music and art and connect and the political sides of being able to capture police brutality and any type of human rights movements, absolutely great. These are really very positive sides and beautiful sides. Even, you know, as we're talking about these ideas of cat videos are things just that make you smile. Well, that's a wonderful part and very sweet part of that. And, and I, I wouldn't want to lose that. You know, I certainly have been listening to a lot of Memphis Soul while I've been down here, thanks to Spotify. So I think technology is, is both wonderful and, and awful at the same time. And you can also listen to the greatest of Memphis music each and every evening on WYPL from 6.30 until midnight. <laughs> nice one. So how is the progress on the travel guide project working? Yeah, it's going really well. It's becoming encyclopedic at this point. So the format of the travel guide, again, is it's a travel guide to an eighth continent that we just discovered. And we can't believe we never discovered it. But there it is, full of... Oh, there's a class of dreams where you find a new room in your house. Yes, this is it, right? And so we're trying to figure out why we never discovered it. But meanwhile, tourism is flourishing there because they have fully-fledged cities and hotels. And among those hotels are hotels that eat you, that are carnivorous, and cities that of loneliness where you can go and everybody's having a great time, but nobody will talk to you. I started with that premise. You know, I have about 70 or the, the length of them are about three pages or so each of the cities, the hotels, and the museums. But now new parts are coming in because there's tribes, so there's anthropological reports. There are dice games and different pastimes. There are languages now to describe the different languages. There are musical instruments we don't have, and these all provide new ways of telling stories. And so I'm seeing that even more than a travel guide is starting to become an encyclopedia to this eighth continent. And it's a pleasure to write. I mean, it's really, we were talking about narrative and non-narrative stories in a way earlier. These don't always have the conflict there necessarily. In some ways, they start to play with that world. They're more like metaphors constantly of the places we visit in our own lives, the moments when we have, for example, a city of joy and we go there and then we return home to our hometowns where nobody you know, greets us when we come home and <laughs> things like that. So it's really a, a kind of close autobiography in the most fantastical uh, way possible. Well, it'd be great for celebrities going to a town where no one would talk to them. <laughs> yeah, right. They might want to go there. Exactly. I've published a lot of them, and Lightspeed Magazine right now is doing a series, and they've been publishing collections of them. And so I'm really happy to see these travel guides get out in the world. And sometimes in funny ways, people will read them. I, I got a phone call from somebody asking, where is this? You know, I'd really like to go to this uh, destination that sounded really beautiful. And I had to say, well, it was fictional, you know doesn't exist. So in being a literary writer who crosses into a genre, since we have to label things, have you gotten a lot of response from people that are normally in the science fiction genre who don't think about literary fiction much? You know, not so much. I'm really thankful for, I've really been embraced by, by both sides, which has been 
wonderful. You know, I'm very deeply grateful for that. You know, my background, as I've said, is not in science fiction. I, I didn't read a lot of science fiction, nor did I read a lot of fantasy. Kafka, Tolkien, George Orwell, almost all of them still fall mostly on the literary side of things. Uh, Tolkien probably is the most genre-specific. And so my worry was, you know, kind of, am I doing, am I allowed to say that I'm writing science fiction? Because I know I'm not scientifically proving and my plots and I don't have that background. But slowly but surely as I realized, oh, yes, I'm writing about intergalactic <laughs> grasshoppers and space things. Yes, I, I think I am also writing sci-fi. From the literary side, you know, when I went to MFA, realism was king in the 90s. And so I had to get into an MFA program by writing realism because you couldn't write speculative fiction and get in. It was just considered genre. That's changed so much because of writers like George Saunders and Karen Russell and Kelly Link and just a lot of different writers. I think Harry Potter had a profound effect on what we were allowed to do as writers. And so the literary side has been very embracing. I think the critique sometimes I'll get from sci-fi is this premise has already been done. This way, you know, it's nothing new because... They're so, only looking at the premise. Right, because of the premise part. And so that's the only critique that I sometimes see come from the, from the sci-fi or the genre side. The limitations that I find on the literary side, at least for putting things together, is the more non-narrative you get, the more, I think, playfully speculative you get into places like Borges and Calvino, they become harder to market in some ways. Like that's a, I'm finding like formalism is uh, to some degree a literary risk for mainstream publishers because we don't have a market as much for it yet. And that's where I think speculative fiction and fantasy side comes in and says, great, we, we love this stuff, give us more. In the last collection, there was um, kind of an experimental story mm -hmm. where um, – you had was it dictionary or encyclopedia That's entries right, dictionary and entries, yeah. and uh, I thought the uh, there was a, a brief short story in this one called Acknowledgements. I thought that was very <laughs> <laughs> yeah very experimental in it's, its form. A very experimental <laughs> form. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, I mean, Michael Martone was a big. He wrote the, that book, Michael Martone by Michael Martone, where it's all contributors' notes and authors' notes. So I'm super interested in playing with those type of forms that we have out there. How can we surprise people? Yeah, I haven't yet fully taken advantage of that. Or or the, um, who was it, Dave Eggers that went into the kind of Library of Congress side of things mm -hmm. and did all, all that work in there? I was just hoping you'd think I was talking about true love. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. uh, it's just me being stupid. Yeah, the true love story, that plays with that is one that tries to break the form of traditional storytelling, mm -hmm. right? Where it's saying, let's look at these different narratives and piece it together. And somebody who was very influential in that for me was David Foster Wallace, brief interviews with Hideous Men, and he did dictionary work of saying, ah, okay, there's a way that you can break form, still tell a story, and it doesn't necessarily have to have the same plot arc. Alexander, I want to thank you so much for coming by again. It's always a pleasure to talk to you, and I hope we have a better 2020 than we did a 2016. I hope so, too. Thank you for having me. It's great to talk to you. Alexander Weinstein is the author of the short story collection Universal Love, which is published by Henry Holt and Company. I'm Stephen Uswery, and this is Book Talk. Thank you for joining us today. Book Talk is recorded in the studios of WYPL in Memphis, Tennessee. If you have any questions or comments, you can email us at wyplfm at gmail.com or write to us at Book Talk, care of WYPL, 3030 Poplar Avenue, Memphis, Tennessee, 38111, or call us at 901-415-2752. This recording of Book Talk is licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivative Works 3.0 License for the United States. You are free to share, copy, distribute, or display and perform this work, but there are restrictions. Nothing in this license impairs or restricts WYPL's moral rights. Thank you for listening to Book Talk.